0: This is Our Wolf, Our Wolf, filling in for Mike Perini and Pandora's Lunchbox, a program about food and culture and nonsense about half of the time. When Mike asked me to cover this evening, I got a uh, an idea right away, but he also sent me a newsflash, so I thought I'd deal with that and also... Something, uh, ...some research I did that's sort of a spin-off of uh, the topic that he sent... ...and then we'll get right down to brass tacks... ...with a special report on the history of TV dinners. But first, let's talk about swine. Yes. A, uh, an AP report from Berlin says that... ...statistics show pigs are hogging the market in Europe as the largest livestock category and outnumber people in Denmark by more than 2 to 1. European statistical agency Eurostat said Thursday that, uh, I guess that's last Thursday, that with a population of about 150 million in the European Union, pigs far outnumber cattle and other bovines, the second largest livestock category, with 89 million head. Eurostat says 40% of the EU's pigs are in Spain and Germany, with significant numbers also in France, Denmark, the Netherlands, and Poland. Denmark is the only country where pigs outnumber people, with 215 pigs to every 100 residents. Not coincidentally, it's also a country known in Europe for its quality bacon. The Netherlands is next with 70 pigs per 100 people, Spain with 63 to 100, and Belgium with 54 to 100. You take those numbers and uh, play the odds, I guess. Okay, I know that, that Lindsay and my cats are begging me to stop playing that. I was playing that the other night while I was uh, feeding them, and they were kind of frightened to come into the kitchen. Uh, next we've got, uh, let's see, let's get that off of there, the techno chicken song remix. There are actually numerous remixes of that, but I I like that particular one. The, the incessantly crowing rooster uh, makes me jolly. Let's see. um, Let's talk about pig farming. And I think a, a good musical place to take us there is this 1927 recording of Thomas Waller. He was not yet referred to as Fats Waller on record labels. He's identified as Thomas Waller. He's playing a hot pipe organ. And this is his own composition, the Hog Maw Stomp. That's actually, I never knew what a maw was until one day I, I was in a market. I went by the meat department, and it's, you know, a hog maw is a pretty hard thing to look at. But the uh, the music is very uplifting. This is one of those YouTubes where they're actually starting up the wind-up Victrola. You hear the mechanism? Uh Yeah. Put the needle on the thing. Okay. The environmental impact of pig farming poses threats to the natural environment. Industrial pig farming, a subset of concentrated animal feeding operations, uh, poses numerous threats to the environment. CAFOs, again that's concentrated animal feeding operations, house thousands of swine and other farm animals in confined areas where feces and waste often spread to surrounding neighborhoods. Polluting air and water with toxic waste particles. Waste from these farms have the potential to carry pathogens, bacteria, which are often antibiotic-resistant, and heavy metals that can be toxic when ingested. Pig waste also contributes to groundwater pollution in the forms of seepage, and waste spray which is essentially the usage of a sprinkler to spray vats of pig waste into neighboring areas. The contents in the spray and the waste drift have been shown to cause mucosal irritation, respiratory ailments, increased stress, decreased quality of life, and higher blood pressure. This improper way to get rid of waste is an attempt for CAFOs to be cost efficient. This presents an an environmental injustice problem since the communities do not receive any benefit from the operations and instead suffer negative externalities such as pollution and health problems. So, let's see. Let's expound on that just for a minute. we move on to happier titles uh, topics. In the 1970s, a series of laws known as Murphy's Laws, isn't that great? They called them Murphy's Laws, were passed in North Carolina to eliminate the sales tax on hog farm equipment and to prevent authorities from using authority to prevent and address odor issues. Because people were literally passing out who lived nearby because of the the stench of swine excrement in their neighborhood after the passage of murphy's laws and other similar bills there was a rapid increase in industry in north carolina where the population of swine was estimated around uh, oh, 9 or 10 million each of those hogs produces eight times the feces of a human being causing a crucial need for regulation and maintenance of that waste so, yeah, there's uh, people who like to talk about pork and bacon and things like that. Or Fats Waller with his hog moth stump, which you just heard. But then there's uh, the problem of the industries, the mega industries that have grown up around these once rather simple uh, domestic arrangements where animals are domesticated and human beings uh, more or less coexist with them, even if they're um, not uh, necessarily letting the animals die of old age. But anyway, my name's Wolf. I'm filling in for Mike Perini. This is Pandora's Lunchbox, a show about food and culture on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. And now the real uh, central portion of this program is a special report on the uh, the history or the uh, the early establishment of the uh, the TV dinner Let's talk about TV dinners. The following is a report from Everyday Mysteries, fun science facts from the Library of Congress. The question for this evening, who invented the TV dinner? Don't look at me, I didn't do it. Like many creations, the story of the development of the TV dinner is not straightforward. Many people and companies played a role in the development of the concept of a complete meal that needed only to be reheated before eating. The invention of the TV dinner has been attributed to at least three different sources, primarily Jerry Thomas, the Swanson Brothers, and Maxson Food Systems Incorporated. Now, Maxson Food Systems Incorporated manufactured the earliest complete frozen meal in 1945 keyword there is manufactured. Of course, people have been finding ways to cool or freeze food for who knows how long before that. But Maxson manufactured strato plates, complete meals that were reheated on the plane. It's on airplanes for military and civilian airplane passengers. The meals consisted of a basic three-part equation of meat, vegetable, and Potato each housed in its own separate compartment on a plastic plate. However, due to financial reasons and the death of their founder, Maxon frozen meals never went into the retail market. Some feel that Maxon's product does not qualify as a true TV dinner since it was consumed on an airplane rather than in the consumer's home. This is before they had televisions on airplanes, of course. Following in the footsteps, imagine this, the footsteps of Maxson's food systems, was Jack Fisher's Frigid Dinners. In the late 1940s, Frigid Dinners sold frozen dinners to bars and taverns. Just contemplate that for a minute. Frozen dinners did not take off, however, until the Bernstein brothers came on the scene to the Bernstein brothers. Come on in, guys. 1949, Albert and Meyer Bernstein organized Frozen Dinners Incorporated, which packaged frozen dinners on aluminum trays with three compartments. They sold them under the One-Eyed Eskimo label. You've got to be kidding! And only to markets in the Pittsburgh area. Though again, Frozen Dinners Incorporated. On aluminum trays with three compartments, sold under the One Eyed Eskimo label and only to markets in the Pittsburgh area back in 1949. By 1950, the company had produced over 400,000 frozen dinners. Demand continued to grow, and in 1952, the Bernstein brothers formed the Quaker State Food Corporation. They expanded distribution to markets east of the Mississippi, and by 1954 Quaker State Foods had produced and sold over 2,500,000 frozen dinners. That number again, 2,500,000 frozen dinners. concept really took hold in 1954 when Swanson's frozen meals appeared. Swanson was a well-known brand that consumers recognized and Swanson launched a massive advertising campaign for their product. They also coined the phrase TV dinner which helped to transform their frozen meals into a cultural icon. <clears throat> but this is where different stories begin to emerge. Until recently, the most widely credited individual inventor of the TV dinner was Jerry Thomas, a salesman for C.A. Swanson & Son in 1953. For example, the American Frozen Food Institute honored him in their Frozen Food Hall of Fame as the inventor of the TV dinner. However, his role as the inventor of the TV dinner is now being disputed. Sickens. Betty Cronin, a bacteriologist who was also working for the Swanson brothers at that time, asserts that it was the Swanson brothers themselves, Gilbert and Clark Swanson who came up with the concept of the TV dinner. While their marketing and advertising teams developed the name and design of the product. Cronin also worked on the project, taking on the technical challenge of composing a dinner in which all the ingredients took the same amount of time to cook, also called synchronization. Notice that it was a woman who came along and said, by the way, maybe we should pay attention to that, eh? So, who really invented the TV dinner? Well, it really depends on your definition. One thing is for sure, though the first company to use the name and successfully market the TV dinner was Swanson. That's from Everyday Mysteries, Fun Science Facts from the Library of Congress. That's off the Internet. I'm not that clever, and I could write anything like that. And the music is from the soundtrack of Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless, music by the Marshall Solal Organization. Very nice. that frantic late 50s European modern jazz. My name's Arwolf and I'm filling in for Mike Perini on Pandora's Lunchbox the show about food and culture on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. we got about 10 minutes left in this show. I'm really enjoying this. Uh, Marshall Salau soundtrack music. Ouch. remind you that it's, uh, it's very snowy outside. I think there's a, still a winter storm blasting through our listening area. I hope you're being careful. If you have to go outside, be advised that uh, there's a lot of uh, mucky muck stuff on the ground and lots more coming down. And I think people are being advised to stay put if at all possible. Thank you very much. And now a word from Wildman Fisher.
1: Take a car. No, sit here. You're up now. Come on. Don't sit down. Don't sit down, Larry.
2: Do the work! Yeah, Larry. Come on. Larry! Make it score!
1: <laughs> but don't ever if you ever get mad at me, don't say anything about it.
2: Right? you promised me that.
1: <laughs> I get real paranoid sometimes. You know, you get on the show and say, I'm mad at Larry and don't like him. <laughs> don't like him. <laughs> Don't bring me down. Take a sense of... Bet you wonder about us not having the Beatles, right? And a Victoria Long Beach chip. Yep, yep. singing that song. <laughs> ta-da-doom, ta One minute, one minute, that's all they want to give me. One minute, one minute, that's all they want me to have. I feel depressed. I feel depressed. In my room Tree, everybody hangs their ornaments on me.
0: It's my hero, Wild Man Fisher, with a, um, a series of beautiful, soul searching uh, moments beginning with the buyabes and then one minute. I'm certainly the best Beach Boy cover of all time, In My Room, and I'm a Christmas Tree. For Wild Man Fisher, In My Room has a special impact because his mother had him committed to a mental institution twice in the early 60s for singing in his room. That's from his, um, I think his best album, Pronounced Normal. He's the first person ever recorded by the Rhino record label, by the way. Also music from Marshall Salau, from the soundtrack of Breathless, the film by Jean-Luc Godard. Well, how are you doing? You feel okay? I had a very appreciative call from a fellow who actually works in frozen foods, and he was very happy. I think he said his name was Russ, and I'm just really, I'm happy that he's happy. That I could be creative even when talking about TV dinners, right? Filling in for Mike Perini on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. But right now it's 7 o'clock and time for our weekly history lesson, which we call Face the Music. Last week I did an entire show about you. And it was just called You. I'm going to continue that theme now. These are all songs about you. They have you in the title mostly from the first half of the 20th century. This program tonight, this edition of Face the Music, is called U2. We'll start in 1927 with a player piano roll cut by, uh, it's it's a four-handed piano roll. And there's not many people with four hands, so they got two people, James P. Johnson and Fats Waller, to sit down and toss this off. The uh, melody was written by James P. Johnson. If I could be with you one hour tonight. And that's what's happening.